This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Nor as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's that kind of comedy podcast time where we talk about comedy and death and answer your questions and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. How are you doing, John? Not great. Not uh, not brilliantly, to be honest with you. Mm. The biggest problem I have uh, in my life right now, Hank, and this is going to come as a huge surprise to you, is that uh, I had uh, an oral surgery yesterday and it was uh, complicated and uh, painful and uh, it's just, it's not my favorite thing. I don't love mm. dental pain, but I have mm. it a lot. I also don't love dental pain, and I don't have it a lot. Uh, you? Well, I, in general, I find you to be a very lucky person. And also, right now, if you brag about not no, having no. dental pain, I am going to reach through <laughs> the ether and strangle <laughs> no. you. Um, we, we did the uh, Patreon chat just before this, and you told the story of why you are having your current dental pain. And I just want to tell everyone, just in case John doesn't want to tell that whole story right now, it's real bad. And ew. And I'm so sorry. I'm not going to tell the story again, but it is... <laughs> really bad. I'm not going to tell it mostly because it would lead to a not insignificant number of our listeners vomiting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you have like 100,000 people, you tell a story like that, you know somebody's going to get a little bit of something coming up. Whew. Well, yep. it's it's a, a beautiful day here in Missoula, Montana, by which I mean it's gross. Um, but in comparison to other planets, I mean perfect outside uh it's so true i mean just the fact of having weather (laughs) is really excellent i mean actually most planets have weather uh they have significant weather and in fact i would say more weather than we have here on earth just like jupiter's weather basically would take your skin right off so i mean uh venus's weather would would even faster you'd basically be that sounds lovely you'd basically be uh cooked but in a way that would be inedible if you lived on venus <laughs> delicious uh would you like a short poem for the day uh sure john too bad i don't have one let's move on to questions from our listeners <laughs> do you want to do you want to do the one that i posted on twitter earlier today uh hank i don't know if you know this about me but i am no longer on twitter i know so you don't know about this wonderful poem i wrote oh my god you tweeted so many times today what is it like i tweeted two times that the world needs to hear from you multiple times a day i actually that's not fair because i tweet all the time as leon musk (laughs) leon musk is not on social media hiatus no 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 no. uh just because i quit twitter (laughs) doesn't mean that leon musk also quit twitter um is it, uh, is it the one about water? Yeah. I dreamt of dozens of glasses of cool, fresh water. When I woke, I was still thirsty. <laughs> this is a dream that, a poem that I wrote inside of a dream after 
waking up from a dream in which I found a bunch of glasses of cool fresh water because I was really, really thirsty. I mean, that's that's inception level stuff right there. Somebody was planting something inside of your subconscious. Yeah. Uh, Hank, I want to ask a question from our listeners. Okay, John. Uh, that, That subject and verb did not agree. So first I want to apologize to our listeners for my terrible grammar. And then I want to ask this question. It comes from Michael who writes, Dear John and Hank, I've been thinking a lot about mottos lately because I want to design a tattoo with a coat of arms and the best ones, coats of arms, I mean, not tattoos, all Always have mottos. I've mostly settled on <laughs> above all compassion, but I was wondering if either of you had better ideas for a motto. Do you have a personal motto? Should I translate my motto into Latin? Mystified by mottos, Michael. <laughs> First of all, I gotta say, John, the way that you said above all compassion, it did not feel like what like where the comma was where it should be. So it's above all compassion, not you are a, I am a, not like a little you're like, above all compassion. I'm above all compassion. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry. Just, My mouth yes. hurts. Um, I'd say memento mori. That's a pretty good, it's a pretty good motto. Question mark? Um, and it's also true. I have actually composed a list of like my top 10 Latin mottos. Oh, Hank. oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I might have overprepared for this podcast while I was uh, suffering from some dental pain. Uh, so my, wife's grandfather had a huge coat of arms in his house like a massive probably seven foot tall (laughs) coat of arms and beneath it in latin in like fancy script it was written uh illegitimi non carborundum do you know what that means no it means don't let the bastards get you down (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's my number one preferred uh, Latin <laughs> motto. Uh, you've also got on here uh, homo homini lupus, John. Man is a wolf toward man. Is that that one? Man is a wolf to man. It's true and it's funny. Not really funny, but it's true. <laughs> uh, uh, sick transit Gloria. Glory fades. Glory saves. You've got uh, Carpe Noctum, which I know uh, as sees the night from the uh, live-action role-playing game Vampire that my friends played back in college. Then we've got Tempus Edax Rerum, which means time the devourer of all things. I'm not sure if that's referring to time the idea or time Warner the company, but uh, <laughs> based on the quality of my cable subscription, it might be both. <laughs> Uh, you've also got on this list Draco Dormian's Nunquam Tilandus, uh, Titilandus, Never Tickle, a Sleeping Dragon. Yep, good advice, and also a good life motto. Uh, Ultima Forsan, which means perhaps the last, which is uh, often also translated as it's later than you think, and appeared on a lot of clock faces back in the day, mm. to remind you every time you were looking up the time oh that you were also one minute or five minutes closer to death. Oh, yes. Uh, John, I have to say about Never Tickle a Sleeping Dragon, uh, I, I've never had an opportunity, nor do I imagine I will, to tickle an actual sleeping dragon. However, I do find myself occasionally tempted to tickle a sleeping baby because... No, that's a terrible idea. Super cute baby. And I'm like, I just want to give you a little bit of... And then it's... And then I'm like, why? Why? Why have I made this terrible decision? I now have to deal with this. I just wanted to touch a baby. And now I've got this thing. It was so good when it was sleeping. Oh, yeah. That's really what it should be. Uh, Baby Dormian's Nunquam Titillandus. I don't know what the Latin for baby is. Yeah, I like above all comma compassion, but to me it's no illegitimi non carborundum. That's right, John. Illegitimi non carborundum. That's just, that's t- to you. And by, by illegitimi, I mean your teeth. This question is from Cato, who asks, Dear Hank and John, recently my friend Carrie, who calls me Potato, informed me that the rocks and general terrain on Mars are putting holes in the wheels of the Curiosity rover. Apparently the rover has been driving backwards for some time now in in an attempt to make the wheels last longer. This upsets me. How much longer can Curiosity continue to give us gifts of discovery until it can no longer move? Once it's stationary, can it still do research of any importance to us? Will we have to wait for astronauts to land on Mars to find out more about the planet. Is Hank's actual Mars news at risk? It's true, John. I do rely on curiosity for Mars news. And if uh, if we, we run out of curiosity, we're going to have less, though certainly not no, Mars news. 
Um, lots of Mars news still, but less Mars news. So yeah, that is a, it is a problem. And uh, the Mars 2020 rover, which we are developing right now, is uh, going to have a different wheel design for this very reason. But at the moment, it's it's a it's a concern, and uh, and we're much more careful about how we drive the rover now. Uh, now that we know that these these uh, wheel holes are a thing. Um, but it's a heavy rover, and it's got, uh, you know, its wheels are built to be lightweight because everything is on it to be, is built to be lightweight, and it turned out that they uh, were a little less durable than we had hoped. Um, the, uh, the Curiosity rover does have a lifespan that is more determined by its power source than its wheels, um, but it, even once it is no longer mobile, it will become a, a stationary science experiment on Mars, and it will continue giving us good data, possibly for 10 years or more, as the Opportunity rover has shown, uh, which is still operational on, on the surface of Mars after having had uh, a, a planned life of like six months. It's 10 years later, and it's still going. So more than 10 years, uh, and a very, very, uh, a, a testament to how fantastic NASA engineers are, are at making things that can... Uh, can live the test of time. Hank, I think that you failed to address the most important part of this question. So I just want to stop you if I can. Did you or did you not point out that this person's name appears to be Cato Potaterson? Oh, hmm. Hmm. Is there is Potaterson a real last name? Uh, well, I mean, it is the name that they signed off with. Oh, and you guys, Potaterson, and I, yeah, it's a thing. If there is a person in the world named Potaterson, and there do, do appear to be several, yes. judging from Facebook, specifically by several, I mean three, um, <laughs> that's the best. How, hmm. how have I gone through life so long without knowing that I could use Potaterson as a last name in one of my novels? Well, I, wor I worry, no, no. Margot Roth Spiegelman could have been Margot Roth Potaterson. Taterman. You know, I, my guess is, John, my guess is that this person's last name is Peterson and that they have added a potato into a portmanteau of their name and have made themselves Potaterson. Because I clicked on Jeffrey Potaterson, the only Potaterson on Facebook, and yeah. it is just a picture of a person drawn onto a potato. That is true. Also, I'm now reading Jeffrey Potaterson's um, status updates, and they do seem uh -huh. to be potato-centric. For instance, some people like yes. me loaded and some people like me plain. I think that is a bit mm -hmm. of a double entendre. Um, and yeah. then previously, it, it, there's one that says, this is a picture of my parents. I know it's a bit inappropriate, but it was the only picture I had of them. And it appears to be two potatoes situated in such a way that they are simulating the whatnot. Um, and uh, also, Jeffrey Potatoson has, has posted, just got out of the oven. So baked right now. <laughs> I mean, just I have not added a friend on Facebook <laughs> in like literally seven years until today. <laughs> I've oh. just sent a friend request to Jeffrey Potaterson. I will let you know if he gets back to me. Yeah, I mean, Jeffrey Potaterson has a bunch of friends, uh, 10 of them, and uh, started high school at Burnsville <laughs> High School on May 5th, 2011. So I don't really know how that worked. But uh, hasn't hasn't updated since uh, January of 2012, John. So we'll see how that goes. I'm going to go ahead and add that friend as well. All right, Hank. Our next question comes from Benjamin, who writes, Dear John and Hank, when I first started going to my hairstylist, I gave the phone number for my dad's membership card. And when she said his name, I just confirmed. And since then, she thinks that that's... <laughs> my name. I've been going to her for many years now, but I don't have the heart to tell her the lie that we've been living. I don't want to admit the truth, but haircuts should be built on trust, right? What do I do? DFTBA Benjamin. Uh, you just gotta, you just gotta live this lie. In fact, you might want to change your name completely and, and let everybody know that you, and, and not let them know why. And the only person that you're not letting know about your name change is your hairdresser. Right. That's one strategy. I think another strategy is to go into your hairstylist and when they're like, so how have things been going the last six to 10 weeks? 
you say, you know, the biggest thing that happened in the last 10 weeks was that I went to the courthouse and I decided to change my name to Benjamin. <laughs> and now I am a Benjamin for the rest of my life. And it's a new thing. It's a fresh start for me. I've always kind of wanted to be a Benjamin and now I am one. And your hairstylist will be like, cool. So should I start calling you Benjamin? And you'd be like, I mean, that'd be great. Yeah, it's my name. <laughs> Good, I like it. And you've solved the whole problem. It's totally solved. It's totally solved. I, I don't have any... God, it's so rare that we're able to actually fix people's problems. Yeah, that feels great. Yeah, there's... I, can I ask you, John, is the, is the phrase hairdresser a weird a weird phrase because they don't, they don't like dress your, like it, it makes me picture two things. Either they're putting clothes on your hair or they're put, putting salad dressing in it. That is the only things that I dress. I definitely prefer hairstylist. So I talk to David about this, who's my hairstylist, and he prefers hairstylist. But I think different people use different words, and uh, it's mostly about listening to your hair professional on what they want to be called. Uh, yes, just like your hair professional should listen to you, Benjamin, about what you want to be called. This question is from Cole, who asks, Dear Hank and John, when I have to go number two, I've noticed that the sensation sometimes comes in waves. In some, in some moments, I feel that I need to run to the bathroom, and then moments later, I feel as though nothing is wrong. And then soon after, it feels as though I will have to go at any moment. I'm hoping I'm not the only person who experiences this. Wouldn't it be easier for my body to tell me when I have to go badly when I, and when I don't have to go badly? Why does my body do this? An avid pod listener on the throne, Cole. Hmm. What do you know about, about pooping, John? Not much, but uh, I am familiar with that phenomenon. I call it contractions, which Sarah takes exception to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I actually do know something about this. I think both because I, I uh, am a, an, a bit of a, an aficionado of pooping, but also... Uh, I know about how the human body works a little bit better than the average person. You're, um, so you have a basically a spot on the inside of your rectum that when it experiences pressure, it's like, now's the time to go. And it actually creates a little bit of a positive feedback loop where uh, it will open and that will allow for more pressure and that will open it more. And that's why it can be hard to not poop. Um, and that... Uh, and and the re like the reason that that spot will be experiencing pressure is because the rectum is not empty, but also because your body, it, all the way from your mouth on down, uh, has these muscle contractions that go in waves. And it's almost like imagine it like you're milking a cow. Like you take the udder and then you're like squeezing it down, um, and like that's what's happening. That it force that's what forces food and stuff through your digestive system. And at the end there, like when you're getting one of those waves, that's when you feel, oh, I'm feeling the pressure now. And that spotted your rectum is saying poop time. Um, and then that wave will stop um, because it, it comes in waves. And then you won't be experiencing that pressure anymore and things will be able to like go back up a little bit. But I will say that if you felt one of those waves, you can usually uh, intentionally make one happen uh, by going to the toilet and it will happen automatically. Uh, even if you don't feel like you have to poop at that moment, if you've had one recently, you probably will go. Wow. But that's why that happens. Interesting. Well. It really, wasn't really a funny answer, John. I, I, I didn't know that I'd come to this party to learn about that, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, we've got another question, Hank. It comes from Leanne, and this is kind of up your alley. She writes, Dear John and Hank, are solar panels designed to work with light from any star or just our sun? Like if Tony huh. Stark invented a solar-powered suit and was then transported to a different solar <laughs> system, would he still be able to charge his suit? Thank you for the answers, the poems. I'm sorry about the lack of poems, Leanne, and the news. Sorry about the lack of news, Leanne. Not a of Beyonce, Leanne. You're not yet, but the good news is, Leanne, that your descendants will be someday. That's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, John, no. Our so solar panels are, that we make are optimized for our sun, um, optimized for the wavelengths that come off of our sun and also the wavelengths that make it through our atmosphere. So uh, at least the ones that we use on Earth are. So our atmosphere scatters certain, uh, certain wavelengths, and so the light that makes it to the surface of the Earth is mostly light that we, in what we call the visible spectrum. And the solar panels that we design are, are made to absorb light in that spectrum. And other stars, brown dwarfs, red dwarfs, red giants, um, 
and there are some whiter stars out there, some bluer stars. They would, uh, like certainly our solar panels would be able to work in those places, but you could design better solar panels for those stars. Quick, quick follow-up question, Hank. Uh, would our solar panels work well on Mars? Uh, yes, because, uh, well, f first we've developed solar panels that work in space, um, and they're basically the same thing. Uh, but it's mostly the, the light that is being emitted by the star that matters. Um, so our, our solar panels would work just fine on, on Mars, and indeed in outer space, which they do right now. Uh, well, I guess that's encouraging for those of us who think that it's a good idea to go to Mars, which I don't. I think it's a terrible idea. I think I think the I think there's a right time and a wrong time for everything in the human life, and the right time to go to Mars is in 2028 or later. All right, John. <laughs> this question. Okay, I have a, I have another okay. question, Hank. Oh, you no, you go. You're right. You okay, go. this question is from Caitlin, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, why does cookie dough taste so much better than the cookies after they've been baked? Is it the texture, the temperature?" Any answer for this would be appreciated. Stay gold, pony boy, Caitlin. Uh, that's a fantastic sign off. Stay gold, pony boy is in my top 10 all time Dear Hank and John sign offs. I don't know what it's from. Is it from something? Oh, my God. What is it like oh, no. to be able to know so much oh, about no. pooping and not know stay gold, pony boy? <laughs> Did you never read The Outsiders as a child, Hank? No. I didn't. Are In you fact, kidding? Someone gave, someone gave me a copy of The Outsiders at NerdCon Nerdfighterian, and it is sitting on my kitchen island. Well, it will take you two and a half hours to read, and it is a really great novel. They also made a very good movie out of it that you could just watch the movie if you want. It's like a classic YA novel. It, it, one of the founding novels of the YA genre. It comes from a Robert Frost poem that I, I'm surprised I've never read to you because it's so short. I'll read it to you right now. It's one of my favorite Robert Frost poems. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank down to grief, so dawn goes down to day. Nothing gold can stay. Ah, mm. Nothing gold can stay, but stay gold, pony boy. Oh, God, it's so good. I got to say, John, that was better than the poem we started out with today. I feel like just a little, just a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a good friend who said that Robert Frost never wrote a poem that a reasonably intelligent fourth grader couldn't understand. <laughs> but I kind of think that's a compliment. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, anyway, uh, why does cookie dough taste better than cookies? You know, I'm not sure that it does. No, I prefer cookies. I think that it tastes different. Yeah, I, 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 there are times when I want both. Like, you know what's real good, John, is you take a cookie, uh, like a cooked cookie, cooked chocolate chip cookie, and then you spread cookie dough on it, and you eat it like, and then you put another cookie on top of that, and then it's a cookie dough cookie sandwich. Boom. Mmm. Five stars to Hank Green. <laughs> I'm selling those from now on. That's don't nobody's take that idea. It's mine. Oh, did you? I mean, you couldn't possibly have invented that idea. Uh, I don't care. I definitely did just invent that idea. I'm googling it though. Uh, it's a great. I mean, I have to say, it is a really, really good idea. Uh, I don't know that it's safe because I feel like cookie dough might have some salmonella implications. That's always my. Yeah, worry. I mean, you can make cookie dough without without. Uh, you can't you can make cookie dough without make it that. without raw eggs. It's hard to imagine how you make cookie dough without eggs. Uh, you would have to use uh, a egg substitute, John. A which sometimes uh. those egg substitutes are made from eggs, but they've gone through a process that sterilizes them. So it's like the cookie dough that they put in like Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Like that cookie dough doesn't have raw eggs in it. Really. I always thought I was taking a risk with uh with with chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, but it's good to know that I'm not. Yeah, like <laughs> Yeah, no. You're good. Um but but there is there is something to it and uh and I I I can't I can't tell you. I don't have the science there, but I know that uh, from my personal preference, sometimes I want one, sometimes they want the it's other. It's a really, really good idea, Hank, for a frozen treat that's like, you know those uh, those frozen treats that you, you can get where it's two chocolate chip cookies and in the middle it's ice cream? I can't remember what they're actually called, but if you just... Yeah, Chip Witch. Uh, sure. If you just put frozen cookie dough in that middle... You could have some magic on your hands. That's an interesting concept. I'd like to see you take it to market. Our next question comes uh, from Lucy, who writes, Dear John and Hank, 
I'd greatly appreciate some dubious advice. I'm 19 and I've been best friends with a girl for three and a half years. I am also a girl and we are incredibly close. About two months ago, we started making out. I didn't know if I liked her, so we decided to kiss. I felt I probably wanted to kiss her because we were so close. Now we've been doing it for two months and enjoying it a lot, as well as seeing each other almost every day. I can't imagine my life or future without her. We don't know if we're in love, though. I've always heard that you just know when you're in love, but I feel like my situation might be different. How can you tell if you're in love with someone when you already love them deeply as a best friend? Is it easy to mix up romantic love with friendship love plus sex? How would I break this news to family and friends who would be extremely shocked to discover our relationship is not platonic? So many questions. Beetroot and polar bears. Lucy. <laughs> Is that a is that an office reference? Like very abstractly, uh, beats and bears and Battlestar Galactica. Uh, I don't know. I don't get. I I, I didn't okay. get the joke. I don't. I'm not. <laughs> you you could. Uh, this is another place where our world of references does not have a ton of overlap. Like I get jokes about <laughs> the outsiders. Like I get jokes about the outsiders, and you get jokes about the office. So it's good. It, we complement right, each other. Anyway. Yes. Hank, how do you know the difference between romantic love and friendship love and how do you know that you're in love i i don't know like the the i'm i it definitely when it starts as friendship it's a different thing and uh and maybe like you you have a little bit less of that like uh you know heart in your throat kind of feeling where it's like this is really happening and oh my god and this and i love this and this person likes me and it's so much and it's like this positive feedback loop of of affection and infatuation that is the thing that is like being in love uh and which is a, a wonderful feeling but not necessarily the the most important feeling that you're ever going to feel um but i to me it's like a friend that i want to hook up with like somebody who I care really deeply about and also want to have relations with. Like that's kind of, is that, is that love? Asks the 36 year old man. I don't know. I think that's why I wanted to ask the question. Cause I think it's complicated. I, I kind of agree with you that there is a culturally celebrated idea of being in love where you just know, and it clicks all at once. And there's no doubt in your mind that you're in love and it's instantaneous and overwhelming and the candle is burning at both ends and will not last the night and etc. But like, I, I have found that the most fulfilling romantic relationships I've had were with people I cared really deeply about as friends. Um, like when Sarah and I started dating, we were re we really liked each other as people before we ever started kissing the like the attraction, the initial attraction was definitely an intellectual uh, friendship attraction rather than, you know, an intense romantic attraction. Uh, but, you know, when the romantic attraction came, it was powerful and an important part of our relationship, obviously. So, I, I, I mean, I think you've got to, Lucy, when you say, like, you've heard that people just know, I don't think that, um, I've said this before, but I don't think that love is like a station on a, like, like a, a train stop or something, you know, it's not like a place you arrive at and then stay in for a certain amount of time or forever. It's more of like a seat for me, at least like it's more of a process than an event, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think most things are more processes than events, though. Events are so overrated and processes are so underrated. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard, it, like, it's that thing, like, there's a moment and you can celebrate a moment. We have this problem all, all over our society and even all over my life where, like, you, in a way, societies, like, the reason we create ritual is to give the significance of an event to the reality of the process. And, and like marriage to me is that same thing. Like marriage isn't right. like a, it's not like a binary switch where you're like you're married and then you're not married. Like that's how it is legally, but we've made it that way in order to give significance to the process of becoming a committed couple. And uh, yeah. And so you've got, and like you and like things like um, birthdays are a little bit that way and coming of age ceremonies like graduations are that way where you've 
we, and in a way, sometimes they can cheapen the process by making it all about this one moment. And so like the four years of high school become all about this one moment of graduation when in fact they were about every moment in which you became a better and, and a smarter and you know more full human being through the process of learning about the world and, and how to do stuff uh, and how to interact with people. Right. Yeah, no, and then you end up like you end up being really focused on the event of a wedding rather than on the marriage. I I see that all the time um where you know, you just get so into planning the wedding and making sure that the wedding is perfect and the wedding is successful and like mm -hmm. really when I look back at my engagement, by far the most important parts were the parts where we were talking about what our marriage was going to look like. Yeah, you know? not what your like, wedding was going to look like. The parts where we were talking yeah. about which flowers were going to be at our wedding are not the parts that I look <laughs> back to 12 years later and think like, boy, I'm glad we had that conversation. Well, I mean, I don't know that that helps particularly with Lucy's question, um, but no, we're 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 way off the rails, <laughs> Hank. <laughs> uh, and I I don't really I don't really know, but I think that if you like this person a lot and also like the romantic relationship you have with them, then uh, think about the you know the now of it and uh, and and appreciate the now of it. And do you have to create? Do you have to like fit this relationship into the tropes of how we talk about relationships or can you find a way to appreciate it for exactly what it is and understand it um, from your own perspective rather than from the perspective of how everybody else thinks about romantic love? All right, Hank, let's move on to another question. This question comes from Grace, who says, I've been thinking about this one problem or idea or situation pretty much my entire life. Also, hi, I'm Grace, longtime nerdfighter, big fan of the pod. When is enough really enough, particularly with money? I've been thinking about John's comment on how he was pretty much anthropologically studying rich people, and he has witnessed... Uh, that while we think we will be more generous and useful when we have money, we really aren't. In general, because we're human and our desires grow right along with our wallets and almost as a rule always outgrows them. So how do we measure our necessary money slash wealth and determine how much to donate or give away or use for not us-centered things? Oh, John. This is a good question, and I think about this a lot as well, Grace. It is a thing that, that is constantly on my mind and a little bit makes me uncomfortable because I'm thinking about other people and how they should do things. Uh, maybe more than I'm thinking about me and how I should do things. But So I, rich people really do donate less of their money percentage-wise to charity than uh, people in the middle class and i am fascinated by this phenomenon where people who make fifty thousand dollars a year don't think twice about pledging 10 percent of their income uh -huh. to charity or to their church or however they give back but people who make five million dollars a year think like well you can't give five hundred thousand dollars to charity <laughs> um and so yeah. it really is true that people in the upper income brackets give a much smaller percentage on average of their wealth to charity than uh people who are um in lower income brackets and i i i think that is because it genuinely never feels like enough. There is always one more thing that you want to have. I mean, in this email, Hank Grace goes on to talk about how for a long time uh, she was living in a car with her partner uh, in order to save money and still felt a lot of guilt about the money that she was spending. So, um, you know, when I'm when I'm uh, like hanging out with people who belong to country clubs. Uh, you know, the level of cognitive dissonance is overwhelming, but like the level of cognitive dissonance in my own life is also overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I do all kinds of things and buy all kinds of things that are ridiculous and completely unnecessary mm -hmm. and uh, it's, and that are very hard to justify. So I have no idea where the line is. I don't think that I draw it well in my own life, um, but I don't also don't want to be looking to make more money because in my own life, I, I think I have known that it doesn't make me more happy. Yeah. 
like it made me more happy for a while, but then I hit a wall after which it didn't really increase my happiness much. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's worth noting that um, there's a there's a there's just a weirdness to economic inequality, and and people don't think people don't think in terms of percentages, um, but the world operates in terms of percentages. So, you know, if you have $500,000 and you invested in the stock market and the stock market goes up 10%, then you made a lot more money than somebody who had, you know, $5,000 in the stock market. And that's how that works. Um, and when you have more money, you can make more money. But it, it also seems like, well, shouldn't we all kind of give the same amount in terms of absolute dollars? Because like $500,000 to charity is a, like, it's a lot. Like, I don't even know how to do that without, uh, without like messing up the charity's finances. Like if, like if the charity is too small, you could like, and you want to give them a one-time gift, you could mess stuff up. It's, you, you almost have too much power and that responsibility becomes like scary or uh, you don't know how to wield it properly or you tr start to convince yourself that people aren't going to do as good a thing with that money that you would do. You also start to feel like it's yours, you know? I mean, there's a weirdness to... That's something that I Bill Gates said to me when uh, I visited Ethiopia with him, not to drop names. <laughs> that was the worst name drop I've ever done in my life. But this is this is true. You know, he he never talks about giving money away. He always talks about giving money back as if it really isn't, yeah. you know, his. Now, that noted, Bill Gates lives mm -hmm. a very nice life. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't think Bill Gates is wanting for any of the any of the material joys of the world. Uh, but I, I do appreciate that lots of people who have billions of dollars don't give back because they think that the money is truly deeply theirs and i just i i, I don't uh i don't feel that way so i guess i i don't know i i don't have a good answer to this grace i think it's really hard and complicated and i am trying in my life to give more back mm -hmm. and take less yeah and i also think that as you know, there's just percentage wise, there's a lot of like a fairly large number of people who listen to this podcast who have a lot of money because in the last 10 years, we've all heard that, you know, the majority of the economic gains of the of the recovery went to the the rich. And that means that a lot of people in the last 10 years have gotten pretty wealthy and more and more people are kind of having to deal with the fact that they have the ability to have an outsized amount of influence and and that maybe they're feeling even guilty about the money that they do have and don't know what to do with it. And so I, I, I've been thinking about, and, and I also am in that situation. And so I've been thinking more about like, how do we structure society in a way that actually allows those benefits to not just affect such a tiny number of people. And, uh, and, and I like, I feel like it's such a big question though, that it, it can, it needs like a, uh, it needs at least a, uh, it needs several books to deal with it. And I, I hope that people are writing those books right now. Because I want to read them. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think wealth inequality is the biggest, the biggest, or one of the biggest problems facing the rich countries in the world right now. I mean, yeah. it's, it, wealth inequality is one of those things that really is getting significantly worse. I think a lot of human life is getting better, but wealth inequality is getting much worse. And that's not just bad. I think that's bad morally. But if you just put aside the ethical questions, the moral considerations, it's also bad for economic growth. It's bad for economies to have so much unfairness built into the system where, you know, some people get huge leg, legs up because they have access to educational opportunities and, uh, you know, unpaid internships and all kinds of other opportunities. And that doesn't end up making, you know, an, an economy where everybody has equal opportunities and where lots and lots of people can be maximally innovative. It ends up creating this really unequal economy. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's a big concern to me. Which reminds me, John, that this podcast is actually brought to you by Huge Legs Up, the plural of Huge Leg Up. Possibly, is it Huge Leg Ups or Huge, we, you know, you're not entirely sure, but Huge Legs Up, fighting to be the plural of Huge Leg Up. And of course, today's podcast is brought to you by Jeffrey Paterson. Jeffrey Paterson, uh, Facebook's only Paterson. <laughs> and additionally, uh, this podcast is, of course, brought to you by Hank Green's brand new chocolate chip cookie dough cookie sandwiches. Uh, cookie, two cookies with cookie dough on the inside. It'll make you squeal with 
heart disease. Cookie dough cookie sandwiches by Hank Green. I think you might want to work on the branding a little bit there, Hank. Um, <laughs> I'm on it. People on don't it. like. Okay. Yeah. Good idea. All right. And lastly, today's podcast is brought to you by Time. Time, really not a very good cable provider. <laughs> and also the devourer of all things. I mean, it's so true. It's so true. So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash Dear Hank. Okay, Hank, I've got a question for you, and you won't understand why I'm asking it for like the first uh, two thirds or so of the question, but then you will understand. This question comes from Allison, who writes, Okay. Dear Brothers Green, although she said that in French, and I don't know how to say stuff in French, so I just translated it. I am an English professor who's been teaching Charlotte Bronte's novel, Villette. I might have said that wrong. In rereading the book with my class, I came across my favorite line from the book again. The main character, Lucy Snow, has been suffering from what I think we would today call depression. She calls it despair and a fever of the nerves. That's actually a really good phrase, fever of the nerves. I can, I can, that resonates. Her friend slash doctor tells her that the cure is to, quote, cultivate happiness. In response, she thinks no mockery in this world ever sounds to me so hollow as that of being told to cultivate happiness. <laughs> what does <laughs> such amazing. advice mean? <laughs> happiness is not a potato to be planted in mold and tilled with manure. So my question is, if happiness is not a potato, what vegetable is it? Also, can happiness be cultivated? <laughs> Your dear reader, Allison. I just thought this was an important question to ask, given the discovery oh of Jeffrey Potaterson and in general, you know, our own orientation toward trying to cultivate happiness. Hank, what vegetable is happiness? For me, it's a cauliflower. Mmm, cauliflower. I mean, I don't know, John. Uh, of the ah, it's, it seems like a pretty bland vegetable for happiness. Do not ever again say that cauliflower is a bland vegetable. Okay, I will not ever again say that cauliflower is a bland vegetable out of respect to my brother, John Green. Good lord. Cauliflower is delicious and amazing, and it's one of the world's healthiest foods, according to worldshealthiestfoods.com. <laughs> So shut your mouth. <laughs> I'm sure you looked that one up, John. I did. Um, I did. I was Googling I... cauliflower to try to learn some things about it really quickly so that I could defend it against your accusations that it's bland. Hank, do you know that cauliflower was Napoleon Bonaparte's favorite food? No. It. I don't know that that's true. It's a, it's a speculation on my part. <laughs> I, uh, you know, John, I'm making a guess, I, but it's an educated <laughs> guess because it, cauliflower is delicious. So it's totally possible. Do you know that there's such a thing as purple cauliflower? I have, I have heard of this. John, how do you... So I would so, say that purple cauliflower is the vegetable that you have to cultivate like happiness. So that's my, that's my final so answer. So if you can cultivate, if you can cultivate happiness and happiness is a cauliflower, how do you cultivate that cauliflower happiness? Hank, can you name the three nations that produce the most cauliflower? Um, I'm going to go with the United States of America. Third. Um, and two other countries. India and China, second and first. Uh, in uh, fact, probably, probably, yep, should have gone for India and China. Makes a lot of sense. China produces nearly half of the overall world cauliflower. 
So I guess the first thing you want to do if you want to cultivate happiness is move to China because that seems to be the number one place to cultivate cauliflower. Um, yeah, that's a great question because happiness is not a potato. You know what? I think, John, happiness is a sugar snap pea. For me, that's what it would be. Oh, so bitter. You oh you just you have not had good snap peas, John. Oh no, and they've got that like they've got that line that goes through them that sometimes gets stuck in your teeth. No. Oh oh man, you gotta you gotta get some good snap peas. I'm I'm sad for you. Move out here to Montana where we make them good. Hank, do you know the three leading cultivators of sugar snap peas? Um, is it the United States? No, I don't. I don't know the answer. It wasn't a rhetorical oh. question. <laughs> I, was, I just I wanted was, to point out that I, I know more about cauliflower than you will ever even know about sugar snap peas. That's definitely true. I, I, could, I even tried to Google it and failed. Um, Hank, have you ever read any of the uh, iTunes reviews of our podcast, Dear Hank and John? So many of the iTunes reviews are like, uh, I really like Hank, but John is so annoying. And I, I always think like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. I'm so incredibly uh, fun and, and cool and great. And that's not nice. But then like that joke was a total example of me being tremendously annoying. So I want to apologize. <laughs> um. I, I, I've been having a hard time listening to anything this podcast because I have this giant uh, Google image search up on my computer of cookie dough cookie sandwiches, and it is so beautiful that I can't think about anything else. Uh, let me look. Cookie. It is, it is, by the way, John, a thing that many people have done, uh, at least in their own homes. Oh, yeah. You did not invent this. This, is, this has been developed oh, extensively. My God, all of those yes. look delicious. There is not an image <laughs> on this Google image search that I would not greatly enjoy eating right yeah, now. It's good. Good yeah, I want, like, How long do I have to scroll down before I find something I wouldn't eat? Uh, wow, that is that is magnificent. Oh, well, that man! I wouldn't eat him. I don't know why there's just a man here. Well, so. I'm glad we. I'm glad you scrolled down to the part where you just start to see humans. Um, Hank, let's uh, let's get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon because it's so important, and I know that it's the real reason why people come to this podcast. So, what is the news from Mars this week? Um, the news from Mars, John. So you know how Mars does not have a magnetic field. I do. Um, Oh, that reminds me, though, that the Magnetic Fields have released a really great new album. So everybody check that out. <laughs> okay. Um, and the, the primary way the Magnetic Field of Earth helps us is not just in figuring out which way it is north, but also in protecting us from the radiation that is being thrown out by the sun in the form of the solar wind. And if you were on the surface of Mars, you would not be protected from that radiation, and it would hurt you, uh, and eventually you would probably get cancer and die. So... One solution to this problem is to just have all the houses on Mars be underground, which is kind of a sad solution because you'd have to live underground, and people like not living underground. Uh, and also it would be, you know, you'd have to spend some time not underground. So a, an alternate solution to this problem, which could also potentially be used in outer space vessels, and could also, John, you will love this, potentially be used to protect the Earth from an apocalypse-causing high-level solar flare that would knock out all electricity in the whole world would be to that is great to news. create a a thing that is not on the planet but sits out in space and uh, creates a high-level magnetic field, probably with like two very strong magnets spinning around each other in some way. And I'm not entirely sure about how this works, but wow, but it's a thing that they are actually trying to figure out right now and uh it, it to be used in those three situations one to be sent out uh to protect the earth from high level solar flares to be used in spacecraft to protect astronauts from the radiation in inter interplanetary space and to protect potentially a future mars colony uh by basically protecting the entire planet so it would be out in space and it would be like if it was on the planet, it would block a smaller amount of the radiation. But if it was out in space, it would give it sort of like a cone that could move out from there and widen enough to protect the whole planet with a much smaller device. Cool. And uh, and I think that that's super cool. And NASA is legitimately looking into how to create these things, uh, both to protect astronauts that uh, might go to another planet, but also pr to protect Earth from this uh, 
thing that happens sometimes and that hasn't happened really since we started relying so extensively on electricity to maintain our lifestyles and uh, and could potentially prevent a uh, straight-up apocalypse. So I had some good news for you, Mar- John. <laughs> I, I almost called you Mars. And I hope... Yeah, thanks for calling me Mars. Uh, <laughs> Made me feel like Bruno Mars for a second. I felt great. <laughs> also, it's like I care about you in the way that I care about a planet. <laughs> well, the news from AFC Wimbledon is not quite so bright, Hank, um, which is that uh, AFC Wimbledon's captain, uh, Barry mm. Fuller... Uh, who's a great guy. I've hung out with him a couple times. I hung out with him after the league uh, two playoff final, and we were both very happy. I think we he might have even been happier than I was. It was just an incredible moment. I got to meet his kids. I got a picture with his kids and his, and his lovely spouse, and he's just a great guy and a real asset to the club uh, in terms of his leadership. And unfortunately, he is going to miss the rest of AFC Wimbledon's season oh. because he tore a pectoral oh. muscle. He had to get surgery, actually. And that just sounds so... Everything else aside, that just sounds astonishingly painful. So um, we're sending our best wishes uh, to Mr. Fuller and his family. And uh, it seems that he'll be out for uh, several months, but hopefully uh, back at the start uh, of next season. Um, Although I think even that might be a challenge. So uh, we're wishing him well and uh, hoping for the best. I'm sorry to hear about that, John, but the good news is that NASA is working on a tool to protect him and also the rest of humanity from high-energy solar flares. That is encouraging. There's so much to be hopeful about. What did we learn today, John? Well, uh, I think most importantly, we learned that cookie dough cookie sandwiches are both a thing and a thing that I need to make tonight. Uh, We learned that uh, you can dress three things in the world. You can dress people, you can dress hair, and you can dress salads. We learned that there are many excellent mottos, especially if you're good at Latin. And finally, we learned uh, that the, 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 the reason you feel like you gotta poop is because there's this wave of muscle pushing stuff down into your rectum. That wave of, wave of muscle, by the way, is called peristalsis. And uh, I'm so glad we got to go back to that. You can just Google that on up and, and find out more about it. Uh, thank you, John, for potting with me today. Um, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> What? How do we end the podcast again? Um, I, uh, if you uh, want a recipe for a cookie dough cookie sandwich, we're going to put that up on the Patreon uh, when this goes live. Yeah, so please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. Uh, Dear Hank and John is produced by Rosianna Halls, Rojas, and Sheridan Gibson. Our editor is Nicholas Jenkins. Victoria Bonjourno is our head of community and communications. Our music is by the great Gunnarola. You can email us at hankandjohn at gmail.com or find us on the Twitter. I'm John Green and Hank is Hank Green. I don't really tweet anymore, so probably your best bet is at Leon Musk for Earth. That's number four Earth. That's right, Hank. Thanks for, uh, thanks for, you know, Leon Musk for Earth uh, has been listing his favorite Marses lately, Hank. Mars the candy bar. Uh, of course, Bruno Mars. <laughs> There's a Mars in New Mexico that uh, Leon Musk is quite ah. fond of. I, I'll tell you, I don't like to brag, but Leon Musk has some incredible social media presence. <laughs> All right, John. Uh, Thanks uh, for potting with me. Thanks to everybody for listening. And as they say in our hometown, don't don't forget forget to be be awesome. awesome.